This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hi guys, it's Chris here from Oscar. Welcome along to another edition of the podcast. In this particular one, well, we're talking to Dean Strang. He was Stephen Avery's defence lawyer alongside his co-counsel, Jerry Booting. He was made famous, of course, by that Netflix smash hit, Making a Murderer. His thoughts on the case and much more coming up. The Big Interview with Offscript. Fans of Making a Murderer will want to just turn up your volumes a little bit more. And even if you are, I'm sure you'll be aware of the series, even if you have not, a bit like Robbie Greenfield, even if you have not sat through it, the next 40 minutes will make for what I hope to be riveting radio. Sono Rupani, for those out there that have no inclination, no idea what Making a Murderer is, frame it for us. Well, the docuseries follows the story of Stephen Avery. He is a man from Manitowoc County, Wisconsin. He served 18 years in prison for the wrongful conviction of sexual assault and attempted murder. Uh, He got out, though. He was exonerated from that crime, was wrongfully convicted. But then he was charged again in 2005 and convicted in 2007 for the murder of Teresa Hallback. But he has always maintained his innocence. They're trying to get everything and see what they can do and tear me down down to the bottom and trying to set me up and Manitowoc County is good for that you know, setting up people you know, I think they're they're all dirty That is the voice of Stephen Avery and it wasn't just Stephen himself who was sentenced to life in prison his nephew as well Yeah, his nephew Brendan Dassey they were both sentenced to life in jail in separate trials for the killing of Miss Hallback Um, whose remains were found at Avery's car salvage yard just a week after she went there to photograph a minivan for sale. But there's obviously more to this story. As we heard from that clipping, there's a lot of suggestion that between the police and the justice system, there may have been efforts made to sort of pin this and target this on Avery. Indeed, yes, Stephen Avery, to add a little bit more context to this story, after that wrongful conviction, he was released from prison 18 years. He spent incarcerated. He then took Monotoc County. He was seeking damages to the tune of about 37 million US dollars before he was arrested for the killing of Miss Hallback. Now, he's been in the news or at least his story has been in the news over the past week or so because his new lawyer, Kathleen Zillner, has lodged an appeal and he won that motion to appeal, Robbie. Yeah, he did. It centres around the fact that I think human human bones or human remains were found in a gravel pit near to the site and they were given to the Holbach family, which was a violation of the, the state law in Wisconsin. So... They've basically used this piece of evidence to reopen the trial, gain an appeal, and uh, and obviously if it if the bones were found to belong to the victim, that means that Absolutely. the whole the whole kind of framework of the case of the prosecution is undermined and it would give him a pretty decent shot of gaining a favourable result in a retrial. No doubt about that, because the prosecution always maintained that Miss Hallback never did leave the Avery property. That was what they built their whole case around. And with the returning of these remains that were found in the gravel pit, there is a suggestion that that is an admission from the prosecution that those bones found in the gravel pit away from the Avery property are indeed Teresa which uh, are are Teresa's remains, which punch a hole in their theory. So there's so much, so much 
to this story. So as we mentioned, Kathleen Zellner appeared in Making a Murderer Season 2. She has picked up the Stephen Avery case. And she has worked extensively in wrongful conviction advocacy. She is an absolute trooper, a superstar in the, uh, the solicitor, in the lawyer world. Dean Strang, alongside Jerry Butting, they were the, I don't want to say stars of Season 1, because it's very important, at the heart of this, and I pointed this out to Dean numerous times last night, a lady was murdered. Right. Theresa Holbach was murdered. This isn't fiction. This isn't a TV show. This is an actual story that, that played out back But it in is a TV show. Well, it is. And that being said, they were fan favourites. I understand what you're saying about, obviously, this is a real case and there was a murder involved. But there was something about these two characters that I think really appealed to pe- people. To the Absolutely. point that there were memes out there making them heartthrobs they're, they're, on the they internet. Were, they, they were, were very popular. well liked characters. Hugely popular figures. You always felt that they, were, they, they came across as very sincere, very genuine. I got an hour with Dean Strang last night. So much to get through, so much to discuss in terms of his thoughts on season two, on where the case is going. I had to start, though, with the news that Kathleen Zellner, Stephen Avery, has won his right to an appeal. What are the chances that that appeal will lead to a second trial? At some point, it's hard to handicap that. I, you know, I what I would say, I guess, is I hope that he gets another trial, and I don't think that's an unreasonable hope. I, I can't handicap the chances of that, and it's even harder to predict whether that second trial might be a year away or might be five years away. So very quickly, you understand and realize that Dean is a very measured individual. Not too high, not too low. I was obviously like a little puppy, excited to be talking to him. I had so many questions running through my mind, but while speaking to him, you quickly realised that he wasn't going to give you any soundbite. Well, he's given obviously soundbites, but not nothing sensational. He's not going to. You're not going to hang an article on what he's saying because he wants to stick to the facts. He does, even in the show, come across as very thoughtful. Yes. And I think, you know, I haven't watched season two, but I have heard from people who have talked about it that they were criticized quite strongly in season two, despite working very hard and very earnestly on Stephen Avery's case. No doubt about that. Kathleen Zellner, who has been described, and these are not my words, a bit of a bulldog, a tenacious individual who is hell-bent on proving that Stephen Avery is innocent of the crime with which he has been committed of. You're right to point out, Sonal, she was incredibly critical, not only of Dean, but his co-defender, Jerry Buting. I had to asking his thoughts on it and what his repost would be. I think she's doing exactly what she ought to be doing uh, for Stephen. Um, the, the avenues for relief are as limited as I said just a few minutes ago. At this point, after you've exhausted your what's called direct appeal or your ordinary appeal, at this point, the, there are only really two avenues for relief. One, newly discovered evidence, or two, uh, failures of trial counsel. And so a good lawyer, and she's a very good lawyer, has to look at whether the original trial lawyers or appellate lawyers, for that matter, but here are the trial lawyers, Jerry and I, made serious mistakes. And if so, whether they harmed Stephen's cause. She has to look at that. And she didn't make those legal rules, but she's got to play within those legal rules. So she's doing what she should be doing. And, uh, you know, that's never comfortable for the trial lawyer. But again, this is part of the legal regime within which we all have to operate. And I, I also think that while it's uncomfortable for any 
trial lawyer to be criticized, any person. None of us mm-hmm. like that. We'd all like to think of ourselves as flawless. I'm not. Um, I make mistakes every day, and there's no question that some of the decisions I made, or Jerry and I made together in defending Stephen, uh, always have been contestable. They may have been right, they may have been wrong, but they are contestable. And, you know, reasonable people could look at those decisions and say, those were failures of trial counsel. It is amazing how he can take his own ego out of that and be Absolutely. so analytical about a process without feeling personally attacked. Because Absolutely. I can't, in, in his shoes, I can't imagine being quite so distanced from it. Uh, and I think from listening to him there, you, you get a semblance, you get an idea just how passionate he is about proving Stephen Avery's innocence, that he is willing, he said it in those words there, he is willing for his reputation to be dragged through the mud. I mean, Kathleen and anyone that's watched season two, and we should probably add one or two spoiler alerts coming along if you haven't watched either of these, but his name was dragged through the mud. She is like a pit bull. She is going at them. But as he says there, I'm willing to take all of that. I'm willing for my decisions to be questioned and to be you know, brought up in disrepute and, and put on television if it means that down the line, Stephen Avery's innocence is proven. And all for the name of justice, right? Indeed, exactly that. But so as he much. said, if he understands how the system works, then it's much easier not to take it personally. Exactly. And we had to get back to it. I had to ask Dean, it was the million dollar question, what he would have done if he could step back in time, what he would have done differently. And he had this to say. Gosh, that, you know, that's hard to say in that my answer to that is clouded by the information I now know was withheld from us. Um, you know, the the computer hard drive yeah. um, that's that's linked pretty compellingly to Bobby Dassey, uh, we weren't told what was on that, and we didn't have the software that would have been necessary to unlock, you know, the, that digital information at the time. Couldn't reasonably afford that software at the time. The state knew about it. The state had a report, didn't give it to us. Um the the bones from other locations out you know outside the Avery property that the state disputed were even human at the time we now know the state gave back secretly to the Hallbach family to bury later that's a concession mm. that those bones in fact were Teresa Hallbach's bones because you sure wouldn't give chicken bones back to a grieving family or give you know uh, ancient remains that are unlinked to that family back to that family for burial. So, you know, I, it, I get, I get distracted and, and I think, um, angry about the information that was withheld from us at the time. Uh, but if I try to set that aside, you know, I don't know on the issue, for example, whether we should have asked for a change of venue and gotten a jury from another county if the judge would have granted that, and I think he probably would have. I don't know whether I would make that decision uh, again today. At the time in 2006, Jerry and I decided, no, we were going to stick with a Manitowoc County jury because at least they knew the history of the Sheriff's Department's relation with the Avery family. But that was a close call in 2006, it would be a very close call today, and I, 
you know, I, I don't know. I might well make a diff, different decision or I might end up right back where I did. That's what I'm saying about we made some hard, close, contestable decisions uh, there. Um, with the benefit of hindsight, turning down a mistrial after the first day of deliberations looks like a terrible decision because ultimately the jury convicted and we had a right to a mistrial and a new trial. But of course, at the time we made that decision, we didn't know what the jury would do. Uh, still, it was a close call. It was a close and legitimately contestable call. The voice there of Dean Strand. Now, a couple of points it is worth just picking up there just to ensure that you're all furnished with the proper details. He mentioned there that part of his regret is not asking for the mistrial on day one of deliberations. Now, that relates to one of the jurors by the name of Richard Maller, who actually stood down from jury duty. Both Jerry and Dean were offered an alternative. They took that option. The story about Richard Mahler is an interesting one. He has since given interviews in which he always felt that it was suspect the case against Stephen Avery. As to the reasons exactly why he was removed from jury duty, we don't really know. He has said in an interview that my stepdaughter ended up in a ditch and my wife needed me at home. That has never been elaborated. That story has never actually come out. The obvious, I mean, there's an awful lot of unanswered questions regarding that. How exactly did his stepdaughter, first and foremost, end up in a ditch? Why did that require him to be home? These things were never explained further. So with a juror being removed, they had a chance then to ask for a mistrial. They chose not to. They brought in alternative. And of course, from there, things spiralled out of control. And Stephen Avery was found guilty of the murder of Teresa Holbach. There are other things regarding the jury as well. One of the jurors, by the name of Carl Waldman, he was indeed an official and an active volunteer with the sheriff's office during the Avery trial. Talk about a juror who should have been nowhere uh. near that jury and that given uh, on that given trial. I mean, it's quite remarkable. So you hear it there, Dean admitting, had we asked for a mistrial, we may well have seen a different response. He also talked about Bobby Dassey and this hard drive. That came out in season two. Bobby Dassey, for those of you, again, who haven't followed the story, he is the nephew of Stephen Avery. He is the brother of Brendan Dassey, who remains incarcerated for life as well. Uh, two separate trials. Stephen found guilty, as well as Brandon Dassey. Bobby Dassey, and again, this comes out in season two, found to have a hard drive with sickening images of young women. Now, of course, that was held, held away from Dean. Jerry weren't made aware of it, despite the fact that that was in the prosecutions, uh, the, the fact that they had access to that. It was never made aware to Dean and to Jerry that that belonged to Bobby Dassey. Now, I'm obviously no lawyer, but I would have thought that would be illegal to do if, if from a state point of view, you had access to that evidence and you didn't share it with the other party. Yeah, I would imagine and, that would... Uh, and Ms. Zellner, Kathleen Zellner, has put that forward in her motion for this appeal. We move forward then. I had to ask the million-dollar question to Dean. Unfair to ask of it. Of course, he represented Stephen Avery across that trial back in 2006-07. But does he believe, and crucially here, does he still believe that Stephen Avery is innocent of the murder of Teresa Holbach? I did believe he was innocent, saying Jerry believed he was innocent. I still strongly suspect he's innocent. I, I, I've never... You know, I lack some humility, but I've never lacked so much humility to assert that I know, you know, he's innocent. I can't know that. 
uh, I wasn't there when whoever murdered Teresa Halbach murdered her. I always have suspected that Stephen is innocent. And rationally, it's never the state's theory that he killed her has never made any sense to me. It's also lacks critical evidentiary support. So, you know, I've always suspected that. And I, you know, I, 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 I simply can't assert that I have some omniscience and that I know it. Um, but that's always been my fear and my belief uh, that he's probably innocent. He is always presented as an innocent man. I will tell you that I'm not disclosing anything that he's said, but you know, anything that would be privileged, but this guy always presented as an innocent man. He was straightforward with us, cooperative, um, and, and, you know, and, and simply, appeared to be someone who found himself in the position of being falsely accused. So there you have it then. Dean, still of the belief, even now, that Stephen Avery is innocent of that murder, of that heinous crime with which he has been sentenced to life for. Now, it's important we give balance to this story because for those of you who have watched it, you are on one side of the fence. There are those out there that say he is guilty and he is where he deserves to be. There are others that say no. There's clearly a miscarriage of justice here. Well, I think for me, having only watched the first season, it's more the idea of this was not just rather than he is guilty or innocent. It wasn't really so much a question of guilty or innocent. It was that this isn't right. The process, Mm. the way that this is happening, there is no justice being served here. Without reasonable doubt is what it always stated as. And one of the things, and again, this is a conversation I'm sure many of you listening today have had with friends, with family. I've had it, and a lot of my friends are, are very much of the belief they refuse to believe that it's institutional corruption. They always say, how could this conspiracy go as deep as it is? That is what the sceptics would say, and I needed to put that to Dean, because you can understand the perpetuation of the lie. Because you get it. The lie has been, the, the, the cast has been died. You can understand them making up lies. But the more sinister aspect is the lie itself at the first port of call, right? If this has indeed been institutional at the very first point where Stephen Avery has been framed for this murder to ensure that the county do not have to pay out in the $37 million damages that he was seeking for being wrongly convicted of a crime he didn't commit and having spent 18 years in prison. What would Dean say to the sceptics? And this is quite astonishing. Well, you know, and that kind of thing can start small, right? Yeah. It's, it, it's really just another example of um, what can happen when we tell a small lie mm. about something. And then we have to tell a little bit bigger lie to cover that up. And then we have to tell a yet larger lie to cover up the second and so forth. And, you know, pretty soon we can find ourselves just ensnared in in our own web of deceit. And um, I think at the core of this, the the police had reasons before they arrived at the Avery property to conduct their first interview, had reasons to dislike Stephen Avery, to wish him ill, uh, and to want to pin a crime on him if they could. And those are, at one level, understandable, ordinary human biases. And uh, the, the problem is law enforcement professionals are supposed to exceed those, are supposed to serve the public and serve it objectively and truthfully. 
Uh, I have always believed and will always believe as firmly as I can believe anything that at a minimum, the Toyota key was planted here. How much more, you know, we could disagree about, but at a minimum, I think that Toyota key was planted. That's my personal belief. And, you know, huge deceptions can start, as I say, with small acts of deceit. There you have it then, and he's absolutely right. And that evidence that he was talking about, of course, he was relating, he was talking about the key of Teresa Holbach's yes. car, which on, a, I think, a first few couple's initial searches was never found. And then on a search, which wasn't meant to be touched by some of the police officers who ended up going in, was found miraculously yes. a couple searches exactly later. Exactly that. His trailer, uh, Stephen Avery's trailer, was searched, I believe, on two separate occasions. Nothing found. Monotoc County, who were being told to stay away because of the nature of his case against them. They were being told to leave this to a separate uh, police department. The ring, uh, the ring, sorry, the key was then found. The key to that Toyota RAV4 was then found, which led to being a very crucial piece of evidence in the uh, in the conviction of Stephen Avery. And when it comes to this sort of institutionalised corruption that we're talking about, I guess what really strikes me is the number of people that have to be involved to make something like that well, happen. Well, it's not just one or two people. Well, you know, there are quite that, a few that players in itself, involved. Absolutely. That in itself, though, I found interesting when speaking to Dean because, of course, for those individuals, and again, we're making some grave accusations here. We've got to be very careful in what we're doing. Stephen Avery has been found guilty of a crime. He's in prison. Uh, there are those out there that believe truly that he is innocent of this crime, but he has been convicted of it. Where a lot of people will, will kind of state that there is a bit of tomfoolery here, probably not the right word, skullduggery perhaps, is the fact that Monotoc County, you heard it in Dean there, it only takes a small lie to begin with. None of these individuals at the core of this story ever believed, ever knew that this story would go global in the manner that it has. To think it's, it's very, if you drill it all down, it's two amateur filmmakers who got wind of this story who chose to follow this story that have helped bring this story to the masses all around the world. For two, three, four, who knows if there is a conspiracy there. For those individuals, they thought it was a simple case of pinning a murder on an individual who falls into the system, falls into the cracks of the judicial system in the US to never be seen again. And in judging this, it's important to remember that we are seeing this. All of our information is through the biases of these two individuals. Of course. Of course what they decide to include, what they decide to leave on the cutting room floor. So there is a certain story that we're being told that they want us to know. So you obviously have to be cognizant and aware of that as well Absolutely. as you're watching the series. It is hard to jump into this conversation. I've been pretty quiet because you guys have seen the series. I have not. You guys know, obviously, what's going on. But in terms of other suspects, usually these cases, if it's not him, it's someone else, can they put forward anyone even closely plausible who might be a suspect if it's not him? If Stephen Avery didn't commit the murder of Theresa Holbach back in 2005, then who did? Amateur sleuths out there, there are a number of names mentioned. And, uh, well, I put the question to Dean, and this is what he had to say. I've never been willing to, to accuse somebody of murder publicly, and especially in a forum in which they couldn't possibly defend themselves. So I'm yeah. not going to do that on TV or radio in Dubai. Um, I have my own beliefs, and there's, there's, again, a core value of humility, I think, that needs to be at work here. Absolutely. Um, which is, I don't know in the end. I have my suspicions. I agree with you completely that the Tadic, 
testimony, the Bobby Dassey testimony, are two examples of many, maybe dozens, of evidentiary points that just have never added up for me. So I agree with that. I will say, too, that you are exactly right when you remind your audience that this isn't fiction. Yes. A young woman lost her life here. A family has a hole in it that will never be filled. And, you know, my, my own view is we do no justice to the victim, the victim's family, or anyone else when we convict someone of a horrible crime like this on less than proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's what I fear happened to Stephen Avery. Yeah, you mentioned Tadic there, Scott Tadic. He is married to Stephen's sister, Barb. Bobby Darcy, as I said earlier, Stephen's nephew and brother of Brendan. Those two individuals were named by Kathleen Zellner in season two as being two individuals that she wants to look into in an awful lot more detail. Bobby Darcy, of course, the uh, admission that there was a hard drive with sickening images on that of a young woman. Now then, I had to ask Dean, because a lot of people, and I am of the belief that the Netflix series has done an awful lot of good, but fundamentally, I've always worried that if Stephen Avery is innocent, the fact that this has been such a global hit and has put such a spotlight on the US judicial system, whether in a weird sort of way, it's actually hindering his efforts to get out of prison. I asked Dean that, has it helped or has it hindered? My own view is that the publicity his case has garnered has both helped and hindered okay. his cause. And I don't, I don't know where the balance ends up, but I, I think it has both helped and hindered. The help it's gotten is it's, it's called worldwide attention to the problem, and it is harnessed in a day of online sleuthing. It's mm-hmm. harnessed a whole volunteer army of people who have plowed through transcripts line by line who, who, who've engaged in sleuthing. Um, and, you know, if, if two heads are better than one, then two million heads are better than two. And, you know, so this is, there's been some help in both the attention and the specific um, ways in which this case has captured um, the interest of many people. But there's a hindrance in that, too, for exactly the reasons you suggest. Um, for officialdom, you know, for uh, the institutional actors in the criminal justice system, the law enforcement people, the judiciary, the prosecution, defense lawyers, conceivably, uh, it raises the stakes of admitting uh, an error of admitting a mistake. It, it it puts personal egos, personal reputations at stake, and and the, the you know the high visibility of this case makes it harder uh, for the system to to acknowledge that it got this one wrong, um, and that that doesn't help uh, Stephen Avery. So you get institutional actors digging in their heels. And, and uh, you know, fortifying their trenches in simply insisting against all evidence to the contrary that this outcome was safe and reliable. It wasn't, but the price of admitting that for personal reputations and for institutional reputations goes way up 
as the visibility increases. It is quite scary listening to Dean spell it out in that manner. And I want to finish, though, on his thoughts because we come full circle. I had to ask the question, given what he knows of the case, given what we are understanding will be moving forward with Kathleen Zellner, does he believe a day will come that Stephen Avery will walk free? I hope so. I really, really hope so. Um, and, you know, how do I believe that? Um, the, the, the justice system lets you down so often, yeah. and then every once in a while it comes through uh, in a moment of grace, and you don't know when or if that will happen. Um, so what you have are hope, and then um, in his case, the good fortune of a tireless advocate who's been willing to put her own considerable money into defending this man. And um, one of the things I wish the public understood better, uh, two of the things I wish the public understood better here, one, that as unique as Stephen Avery's case is with the background of having been exonerated on an earlier crime and then charged with something even more serious, as unique as that is, Brendan Dassey's situation is common. Yeah, There are thousands of Brendan Dassey's, young people, learning disabled or with mental or emotional disorders of some kind who get interviewed by the police every year and who are subject to the same stratagems that were used uh, to manipulate him into adopting a police version of events. So that's one thing. And, uh, you know, the, the second thing I wish people understood is that as wonderful as it is, for Stephen Avery, who very, you know, very likely is innocent of this crime, or may well be innocent of this crime, as lucky and wonderful as it is that he has uh, the Zellner law firm working for him and willing to put their own money into defending a man who's penniless and approving his innocence, that's rare. Mm. That's rare in this country. Most people with a with a plausible, legitimate claim of innocence don't have anybody who will put 500 bucks or, or who has $500 or 1000 or $1,500 to put into proving their innocence. Most legitimate, plausible claims of innocence go undeveloped and unexplored in this country for want of money. The voice there of Dean Strang finishing on a, a strong and, and very relevant, pertinent point as well. We had Valentino Dixon on this very show, another man who was incarcerated for a crime that, it, crucially, or eventually, it was proven he didn't commit 27 years. He ended up in prison. It took Golf Digest and other various entities to help him prove his innocence. And as Dean, I think, is pointing out there, there are many individuals in the US and around the world, judicially, who are in prison and who do not have the means with which to fight their convictions. Once again, a big thanks to Dean Strang, making a murder. The Offscript Podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please do go ahead and click subscribe. You can also check out our other podcasts, Time Capsule or The Big Interview. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. 